Sarah and Letty and Tripp, Charles and Becky. That's a foretaste of glory divine. That's what's going to happen tonight. That'll be part of the presentation, but only a part. So I hope you'll be with us. And by the way, the stated time of beginning is 6 o'clock, and that's correct. But the half hour before, we'll have a beautiful prelude. Laurie Koval, one of our church members in our orchestra, will be doing instrumental music. It would be worth your while to get here early for that. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. And this morning we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 5. Before we look at these verses, let me just say this. Christmas without the cross of Jesus Christ is no Christmas at all. When we see the things which Jesus said regarding why he came, he says in the book of Luke chapter 19 verse 10, that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. In Mark 10:45, Jesus says, for even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He ransomed us from sin and the domain of darkness by shedding his blood on the cross. He didn't just do it by being good. He took a perfect life and yielded it to the Father's will and took the punishment for your sin and mine upon himself. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. Now, we like that one a lot, don't we? We all want a full and meaningful life, and that's what God has for us. But we bypass what was necessary many times in our thinking to get to that point. We fail to realize that Christ gave his life, which is the only true life, in order that we might have the same life indwelling us so that we could be people who accomplish God's mission for us in this life. So the point is that Christmas is about the cross of Christ if it's about anything else. Of course, it's about the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And we know, I think at least, that the incarnation is the fundamental doctrine of the Christian life. Without the incarnation... There would be no hope for us in this world. We're going to read another statement. This was not from the mouth of Jesus, although Jesus taught these things to the Apostle Paul, and he reports them to his son in the faith, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Paul writes, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Let's examine this passage of Scripture. First of all, to discover where did Jesus come from? And secondly, what was his mission? What was the origin of Jesus? 
Well, there's no way for us to pinpoint exactly the origin of Jesus. For you see, Jesus is eternal. Jesus existed prior to his becoming one of us. In this statement, which Paul writes to Timothy, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. Where was he before he came into the world? Well, Jesus says this in conversation with his adversaries found in the book of John chapter 8. He says, you came from below. I came from above. Jesus Christ existed before he became one of us. And he existed as God before he became human and took on the form of a baby and then grew into maturity. It was imperative that he become one of us in order that he could do his mission. His mission, of course, is to save us. Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, he's not called John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. It's easily to confuse that he was the author of John if it were not for the fact that we know from other Gospels that there's a distinction between the one who wrote the Gospel of John That one would be an apostle of Christ and John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the predicted, prophesied forerunner of Jesus Christ. When John was asked, who are you? John the Baptist responded by simply saying, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. He was born approximately six months before Jesus was born. But he makes this astonishing statement that's recorded in John chapter 1, verse 15, about Jesus. He knew Jesus was his cousin. And this is what he said about Jesus. This one is greater than I because he existed before me. He said he has a higher rank than I before he was alive before me. Now, how does that work? John the Baptist, six months older, and Jesus existed before him. The only explanation for that is that he pre-existed in eternity before he became a human being. He was God, of course. Jesus says in John 3.13, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven the Son of Man. I don't want to work this too much, but I hope you see that Jesus preexisted. He was co-eternal with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. The first words in the book of John, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was God, fully God, not just a God. He was fully God before he began his mission here on earth by becoming one of us to secure our salvation. Christ was preeminent in his preexistence. What do I mean when I use that term, preeminent? Well, we'll get some help from Paul's writing to the Corinthians in the second book of Corinthians, chapter 8, verse 9. In that, this is what we hear Paul write about Jesus. Our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who was rich became poor so that we who are poor could be rich through him. Jesus forfeited his position of glory in heaven and all that was associated with that, the richness of it. We have no way to fully appreciate the richness of Jesus in his glory, but we know it was infinite because he is infinitely God. Jesus says this. It's one of my favorite things I've heard from Jesus, and you're going to hear it now if you've not heard it before. It was a prayer which he prayed the night before he was arrested and he was crucified. In John chapter 7, verse 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus was in his glory. He received all the adulation, all the praise, all the honor, all the glory. All of that came to Jesus, and he luxuriated in it, I'm sure, in heaven. And he left the comfort of heaven in order to become one of us so that he might secure our salvation. Jesus' wealth included the ownership of the world. John tells us this in the opening part of the book of John. It says, Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. Those to whom he came specifically, initially, were his own people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they did not accept him. They rejected him here on earth. Jesus came from heaven where he was adored to earth where he was not even considered worth anything by the world. Jesus' wealth also included the worship of the heavenly host. The angels announced his birth. We know that from the story of the nativity in the New Testament. And they took care of Jesus in the wilderness. They tended to him. During that 40-day period when he was fasting and they ministered to him. Jesus' origin? Well, in a sense, he didn't ever have an origin because he's eternal. But in his humanity, he became one of us. His origin was in the womb of Mary, his mother. And then he came to live on this world, in this world, on this earth. Let's look at Christ's mission now. Look again at our text. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was Jesus' mission. Jesus says this about himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then he goes on to say, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus came to save us. I know I'm sounding like a broken record, but this is indeed something that bears repeating and our understanding the significance of it. We are sinners. All have sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of the glory 
of God, without exception. Each person who is alive today, every person who's preceded us, every person who will succeed us, with the exception of Jesus Christ, has sinner as his or her name. If our greatest need had been for information, God would have sent us an educator. If it had been for technology, he would have sent us a scientist, perhaps, if it were for money, an economist, if for pleasure, an entertainer. But our greatest need was for forgiveness of our sin. So God sent us a Savior. When the angel appeared to Joseph, who was the foster father of Jesus, this is what he said about Mary, his betrothed. She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Savior. I can only imagine when Jesus would hear his name called growing up, or when he was being introduced to someone as he grew up who did not know who he was, and they asked, what is your name, boy? He would say, Jesus. Now, he was not the only person in his day who bore the name. It really would have been Yeshua, which would be the Aramaic way of saying Joshua, and the word Joshua has to do with being a savior. But Jesus, every time he said his name or heard his name called, it was a reminder to him as to what his mission was. Jesus' entire life was aimed in the direction of securing our salvation. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you think Jesus Christ could have died sooner than the age of 33 and secured our salvation? Well, that could be debated because it was God's plan that at the age of 30 he would take up the role of rabbi and that was the acceptable, in fact, probably the mandated age at which someone could become a rabbi. He was not ready to lay down his life for us when he was 30. When we see him doing what he did to minister to people in the Gospels, we overhear him saying from time to time when he's healed someone, miraculously taken their ailment away, he said, don't tell anybody. Just go to the priest so the priest can authorize that you have been made well. That's all you need to do. Keep it quiet because why? My hour has not yet come. Mary, his mother, at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, she was evidently closely related, at least in interest, to the couple which was marrying there. And they ran out of wine, and the result was that People were getting a little panicky. It was the highest level of embarrassment to run out of wine for a wedding celebration. So she says, son, do something about it. And what did he say to her? My hour has not yet come. So why did Jesus delay his crucifixion? One would think he had no control over that. One would be wrong to think like that. When you look at the details of his crucifixion, for instance, when he was arrested in the garden, do you remember that story? Judas came and brought a temple guard, led them to Jesus where 
he knew Jesus would be. It was Jesus' favorite spot in the Garden of Gethsemane to go and have a retreat, especially during the, during the Passover when the city was filled with people. And when he got there, this temple guard asked the question. We don't know exactly how many people have been involved, but suffice it to say there would be at least 30 or 40 people coming to arrest one man. And he asked, whom do you seek? Do you remember what he said? They said to him, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. And the result was, listen, they fell to the ground. He didn't even say he. He simply said, I am in answer. What was he signifying? I'm God. And the word that's used to describe these men falling to the ground, these soldiers, these police officers, if you will, they fell to the ground. The word was used outside the New Testament to describe someone who was pinned to the ground by a wrestling opponent. By saying his name, Jesus pinned those soldiers to the ground. And by the way, they would still be there today if he had not let them up because he was God. He was in charge. So the reason Jesus delayed and the reason he kept saying, my time has not yet come, is because he was preparing 12 men, one who defected, we know who he is, Judas, to carry on the work. Jesus' final work is to go to the cross and save us from our sins. But we, not, we need not overlook this very important work of pouring his life into these 11 people so they in turn could be the disseminators of the gospel all over the world. If you study the lives of these apostles, what you discover is, with one exception, remember Judas committed suicide. There were 11 left. Of those 11 apostles, we have extra biblical evidence of what happened to them. Ten of the 11 died martyrs' death. The one who traveled the farthest with the gospel was Thomas, the one who is typically called Doubting Thomas. Well, Jesus erased that doubt, didn't he, from him. But ten of the eleven died martyr's death. The word martyr itself in English comes from the word in the New Testament which means witness. A martyr is a witness to Jesus Christ. And Jesus poured his life into these people so they in turn could do likewise as they took the gospel all over the world. How did Jesus save sinners? Well, we've already talked about this. We read about it in Romans 5. God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That seems rather plain on the surface of things. But what we need to understand, he saved us from our sin, yes. He saved us from the wrath of God. That is even more weighty, in a sense, than saving us from our sin. Because the Bible says about Jesus, God the Father made Jesus the Son to become sin on our behalf in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. 
Jesus was punished for our sin when he went to the cross, and he was the only person who could do that effectively because he was God and he was human and he never sinned in his humanity. And therefore, the right sacrifice, the only sacrifice which could be given for our sin was that of the spotless, blemishless, sinless Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how Jesus accomplished his mission. He saved us from what Paul calls the curse. In the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 13, listen carefully. Christ saved us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. The reason that the Jewish authorities were so intent upon getting Jesus before Pontius Pilate, who was the representative of Caesar, to be tried for treason was because they knew if he were found guilty, then he would be crucified. And they knew that their people would not be able to embrace a so-called Messiah as being the Son of God and the Savior of the world if he were nailed to a tree or died on a tree because their law, which was given by God, says, Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. Jesus became our curse. Sin beckons a curse upon it from God's point of view. He had to exercise his judgment. And he did it on his son so that we would not have to bear the brunt of the wrath of God. The scripture says in John 3.36, it's debated as to whether John the Baptist said this or Jesus. It's beside the point. It's God's word. Listen to what it says. He who believes in the son has eternal life. But he who doesn't obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Do you understand that you who hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have the responsibility placed upon yourself to trust in Christ. He has done the work for us by taking our place on the cross and the wrath of God abides on you and me only if we allow it to once having heard the gospel. Because when we hear the gospel, we are to trust the Lord for it. And the good news is, as we've already seen, he wipes the slate clean. I, had, I have a cartoon I cut off out. It was a Peanuts cartoon. Some of you are too young to even know what Peanuts is, maybe. But probably half of us understand the context of that. And Lucy gathers all her friends, as she was apt to do, Linus and Patty and Schroeder and, of course, Charlie Brown. And she is talking to them, and this is what she says as she holds a document in her hands. Please sign this. It absolves me of all guilt. What does this mean? What's it for? No matter what happens, any place or any time in the world, 
This absolves me from all blame, Lucy said. And then the others joined her in saying, that would be a wonderful document to have. Wouldn't you like to have a document like that? It just makes you guilt-free. No matter what's happened, you're free of guilt. You know you have such a document. Look at the book of Colossians. If you'll turn back just a couple of books in your New Testament, the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And this is what the Bible says. When you were dead, talking about the Colossian believers, this would be applicable to us too because we were dead spiritually when we came into this world. When you were dead in your transgressions, a big word for sin, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with Christ. God made us, the Father made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions. I would say that's being a person who is the beneficiary of absolution, wouldn't you? Total forgiveness. Look at what follows. Having canceled, this is what God the Father did through Jesus having canceled out the certificate of debt, debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Here's one of the decrees that was aimed at us before Christ came and died for us. The Bible says in the book of Ezekiel, the soul that sins will die. It's not talking about physical death. It's talking about spiritual death. The soul which sins will die. But there was another decree that superseded that decree. That decree is certainly in keeping with the nature of a holy God. He must do something with sin. He must punish sin in order to maintain his own integrity. I'm talking about God has to do that. But another decree was set forth that Christ would come into the world and that he would die for our sin. And if we appropriate, we make it our own, we hear the gospel and we say, I want that. I want him. I want a savior. I can't do this by myself. The result is that God works mightily in our lives. Now look at this. Verse 14 of Colossians 2. Please carefully consider it. The certificate of debt is what would be in our parlance an IOU. It's like when you buy a car and you borrow the money for it, you sign the dotted line. And it's too late then, isn't it? You signed it and you're in debt until you pay up the last penny. Or if you buy a house. Many of you have had the joy of having put a down payment on a house, paid on it for maybe 30 years, and then all of a sudden that last payment was made. Was that a great day for you when you did that? Some of you are saying, shut up. I was doing well until you started talking about a house note, you know. But the beauty of that is it's all wiped out. This is exactly what these Colossians would have understood. The certificate of debt, it's hostile to you. You're a slave of it in effect. We are slaves to sin before we come to know Jesus. And what has God done? He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The cross 
is that which satisfies the wrath of God. So we, as surely as Lucy carrying this document, we have a more important document. It's the promise of God's word about what he has done on our behalf. What must I do to be saved? I'm glad you asked. A Philippian jailer asked the same question of Paul and his companion Silas. The answer is very terse, very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. This is belief is more than intellectual belief. It includes understanding who Jesus is, that he's fully God and he's fully man. It's important to understand that Christ died for your sins. It's also important to believe he's been raised from the dead. Those things are important truths that we need to understand. When I came to Christ as a child, I understood those things. I didn't understand them to the level that I understand them today, but I truly understood them. I knew that I was a sinner. You say, well, what can a kid do? Well, I could lie, which I had done. I could uh, disobey my mother. I sassed her a lot. At least she said I was sassy. I dishonored my mother and my father. I lied. I stole. I remember taking money. This is my only memory of thieving. But the popsicle man came by every day at a certain time in our neighborhood. And so I went, and my dad would leave change on his chest of drawers. I knew that. And I went in there, and I got the money, and I took it out. And I probably had been told I was not to get any popsicle or ice cream that day. I went out, I got it, and I was enjoying it. And then my dad said, son, where'd you get the money for that? And he knew exactly where I'd gotten it. And I said, daddy, I took it off your chest of drawers. I stole from him. And he taught me a lesson that day. I won't tell you exactly how he did it. <coughs> but he did. So this belief is more than intellectual. It's more than emotional. A lot of people have emotional conversion and really don't have conversion. Conversion occurs in your will. You have to choose against yourself in favor of yielding your life lock, stock, and barrel to God, to Jesus, to make him your Lord. Who wouldn't want a Savior to take your sins away? But here's the rub for most people, adults particularly. I don't think I want to give up Jesus, my control to Jesus. I'm just not ready for that. Maybe later, but not now. You understand what I'm talking about. Some of you wrestled with it. When the Titanic went down in the North Atlantic on April the 15th, of 1911. There was a man aboard. His name was John Harper. He was a follower of Christ. Actually, he was a preacher of the gospel. He was on his way to Chicago to preach at the invitation of the Moody Church there to preach the gospel. He had his little six-year-old daughter with him. Her mother had died recently. He was a widower. And the tragedy struck. And the boat began to sink. He was one of those who was orchestrating the evacuation of that great sailing vessel. And he said, 
as he was telling who should go into the boats. He says, women and children and the unsaved is what he said. He found himself in that icy water. He had given his own life jacket away to someone who did not have one. And as he was treading water, didn't have any flotation advice, uh, device or anything like that. He was treading water. And as he treaded water, he came near a man. And this man was clinging to a piece of wood, which was enabling him to stay above water. And he asked the man, are you saved? And the man said, no. And he simply said to the man, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then the current took him away. They were separated. Then somehow or another, they found themselves near one another again. And John Harper said to this man, are you saved? He, he said, no, not yet. And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Well, the man did receive Christ, by the way, in those icy waters. His life was radically reversed. His sin was forgiven. And he told this story, never tired of telling this story to people, about how this man whose name he didn't even know, he learned his name later, he found out who he was. But he told him that. We must confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead. And then we will be saved. You might say, saved from what? Well, from sin, the punishment of sin. But you're saved for something. This is oftentimes left out in a presentation of a message like this about the cross and resurrection of Jesus. You're saved for being useful to the Lord. Can you imagine being employed by the king of kings, the master of the universe? He has a plan for you. And it's not a plan for calamity, the Bible says, but for shalom, the best which life has to offer. And the best which life has to offer is to find oneself in the service of the king. And I'm not talking about being a preacher. Please. I was sharing Christ with a young man a week ago today, a bright young man, a handsome young man, a, a really strong young man, intellectually strong, physically strong, relationally strong. And he's wrestling with whether there is a God. And he has been raised to believe there's a God, but he's reached that age where he's making his own decisions. He's not just doing things to please his mother anymore. And in the conversation, as we talked, it became apparent to me, he said, I'm just not sure I want to give everything to the Lord. And this was sort of an epiphany to me, and he, he confirmed this is what he was thinking. I said, do you think if you give your life fully to the Lord, you're going to have to be a preacher? And he looked very sheepish, and he said, yes. I said, well, forget about it. I don't need the competition, man. <laughs> I didn't say that. But not everybody's supposed to be a pastor. Not everybody's supposed to be a missionary. Not everybody's supposed to be in what we oftentimes wrongly call full-time Christian work. If you're a follower of Christ, you're a full-time Christian. Would you want a sometime Savior? I don't. We don't have a sometime Savior. Jesus Christ lives to make intercession for us. 
and he wants us to be full-time followers of his. That's what it means to be a Christian. The question for us this morning is, do we have that kind of commitment to the Lord? Are we sold out to the Lord? That's what being a Lord means, being sold out to him. Would you bow your head? Have you ever come to that point in your life where you let go of the control of your life? Remember, it's not just about intellect. It's not just about emotion, although those two things, especially the intellectual side, you have to understand certain things about who he is in order for him to save you. You may not have any feeling at all. That's beside the point. But your will, have you willingly said, Jesus, forgive me. I believe in you. I want you to be my Lord. Give me eternal life as you promised me. A step of faith, a small step, it's a huge step, it's the biggest step anybody ever makes. But to step from where you are if you are in a state of unbelief to a place of belief is not that big a step in terms of the way we view it in our minds. But in our will, it's a big step. The Christ who loved you enough to die for you is waiting for you to give your life to him. Would you give your life to him today and have eternal life? Let's stand together now. We're going to have a time of commitment. Pastor Dam will be here. Pastor Sam, I'll be here. If you'd like to come to confess Christ as your Lord, no better time than the present. You come speaks to you today as we sing this song, I Surrender All. Let's sing it to the Lord.